Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman. The show you're about to listen to is taken from our Global PR Summit, which took place in Miami a few weeks ago. This is actually the first session from the event, introduced by Homes Report founder Paul Holmes and featuring Harvard University professor Sarah Lewis on what creative disruption actually looks like, what are the conditions under which it flourishes and what are the challenges it faces. It's an illuminating, fascinating conversation moderated by Ketchum Global CEO Rob Flaherty. I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it, but do, as always, let us know your feedback. Thank you. I am excited to be doing this still at a time where public relations continues uh, to expand its remit, to become more important in the C-suite, to play a more central role in the brand building process. At the same time, I think we saw some research a week or so ago from the council, the PR council, that indicates that when it comes to persuading our clients that public relations should be taking a leadership role, Uh, we still have some work to do, and that's why I think events like this are incredibly important, uh, he says entirely modestly. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I continue to believe that this is the most exciting time to be in public relations that I've witnessed, and this is my 30th year of doing this, Um, so that's a pretty long-term perspective. Um, I think, you know, the the pace of change is faster than it's ever been, the opportunity is greater than it's ever been, the intellectual component of our industry and the sort of thought leadership in our industry is more exciting than it's ever been and and we'll have a great deal of that on display as we go through the day. Having said that, I'm very anxious to get to our opening speaker. Ketchum has been a supporter of this event from the first year and has consistently brought us interesting, challenging speakers uh, from outside of the public relations industry. Um, I always feel that that perspective is the most interesting. Um, It it tends to um, tip our conventional thinking a little bit and, and persuade us to think about things differently. So I'm intensely Grateful to Ketchum and to Rob Flaherty and to their speaker today, Sarah Lewis. Let me um, welcome to the stage, Rob. Good morning, everyone. Very happy to be here with you. Uh, Excited to introduce our speaker. Um, You know, one of the themes this week is culture, culture and character. And we thought we'd start with a discussion about culture, the kind of culture we need to create in order to deliver even better creative campaigns, and creative content. As you know, we have a huge opportunity. Uh, The the opportunity brought about by the digital and social revolution, I call social platforms God's gift to the communications function. It's opened up a tremendous world for all of us. But at the same time, in order to seize that opportunity, we need to staff our in-house function or our agency with different talent, with different skills. visual storytellers, cinematographers, uh, great, great writers, uh, all kinds of web development, web design, people who find the incredible intersection between brands and entertainment. Basically, we have to be constantly raising our creative bar. If we're going to be effective in seizing the white space, which can be claimed by marketing, advertising, digital shops, 
If the communications function wants to seize that opportunity, we have to raise the creative bar. It's a great opportunity, an exciting one. And it asks a few questions. Um, how are you adjusting and evolving your culture? How are you creating the conditions that lead to phenomenal creativity? Um, how's your physical environment these days? Is it one that breeds uh, an environment for creativity? How's your, how are your hiring practices? How's your ability to bring forward diverse talent, people from non-traditional backgrounds? Uh, how much are you embracing the arts within your company? You know, uh, we have something at Ketchum in our London office. London happens to have a big reception area, and they were smart enough six years ago to start something called Art at Ketchum, in which they bring artists from London, it, 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 legitimate fine artists, in to exhibit their work for a month. It's going on right now. I think that's an example of embracing the arts. You know, if you go to the Cannes Creativity Festival, that longtime bastion for marketing and advertising, I'm surprised to see that about a third of all the sessions there are about art. They're not just about advertising and programmatic buying. They're actually about embracing the arts. And our field, I think, needs to embrace that world even more. Um, and it also raises questions about, as this uh, session is titled, Leading the Creative Enterprise, what kind of leaders are we? Are we leaders that are ready to lead a more creative function? Are we ready to lead, dare I say, um, talent that is a little bit more idiosyncratic and eccentric? Because if we're doing this right, we're going to have more people from uh, ec uh, eclectic backgrounds around us. Uh, have we adjusted our leadership style? In fact, if you look at your leadership team, how many of them come from the creative side of the business versus the account management side? And so those are all questions that we were intrigued by. And then we came across our speaker. Sarah Lewis um, is not, as Paul said, from the world of public relations, communications, or marketing. We always uh, at Ketchum try to bring someone to this meeting that is from outside our field. But I think you'll find her to be uniquely qualified to discuss this topic. Uh, she has her undergraduate degree from Harvard University, her master's in philosophy from Oxford University, her PhD in history of art from Yale University. She's served on President Obama's Arts Policy Committee. She's been a curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Tate Modern in London. She is an assistant professor right now at Harvard, and she's on sabbatical to write her third book. Her first book is one you may have heard of. It's called The Rise, The Gift of Failure and the Search for Mastery. It's a phenomenal bestseller, translated into six languages and led to uh, a highly viewed TED Global talk. Um, she's going to talk about what it takes to create a culture that delivers phenomenal creativity through the lens of the arts. Please join me in welcoming our guest, Sarah Lewis. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. Good morning. Maybe one more time. <laughs> oh, I need the clicker, actually. Good morning. Well, it is a real pleasure to be here. Oh, don't worry, it's, they'll find it for me. I'm just asking for the clicker, sorry. And the countdown clock, if that could begin, great. Well, Rob, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you to Paul Holmes also for having me. Last May, I think it was, I spoke at the Ketchum Partner Conference and it was for me one of the most rewarding conversations I've had about this, this book. And because it's the morning, I'll begin with a little confessional as well. 
When I wrote this book, The Rise, as you can maybe tell from the subtitle, The Gift of Failure, it wasn't necessarily easy for marketers uh, to get across to people succinctly. I think I lost more sleep over understanding how this would work than I did actually writing the book itself. Thank you very much. And I learned to have so much respect for the process of distilling a complex idea into a succinct message, which is what all of you probably do in your creative enterprises. So I really am hoping to learn as much from you in our Q&A as I hope to impart uh, to you here in the first 40 minutes of the talk. Are we okay? All right. So today what I want to speak about is what propels creative excellence in enterprises. What spurs people on to path-breaking growth? For the last five to 10 years, I've been looking at the lives of those who you might call creative masters. Explorers, entrepreneurs, artists, athletes. And I did so because I was compelled by something unique in their process, something we don't often discuss which is that what we celebrate about their achievements was often built on an improbable foundation, oftentimes a near win, that gave them a level of frustration that catalyzed and propelled them into an unseen level of success in their fields. I was curating at the time at MoMA, and maybe that's why I was so interested in the artistic process, but I'll give you a few wide-ranging examples to give you a sense of what set me on this journey. I first learned that Duke Ellington said about his now landmark music, I merely took the energy it takes to pout, and I wrote some blues, he said. I learned that Thomas Edison told his assistant, incredulous of the inventor's repeated attempts to invent the incandescent light bulb, I see heads nodding, you know, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. I learned many more stories. I learned about this RKO screen test from 1930s that said simply, can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little, and that was in reference to Fred Astaire. I learned that the really beginning of the communications revolution, the telegraph, began with Samuel Morse's failed attempt at being a painter. What you see here is the first model of the telegraph, and the square itself is the stretcher bars for one of his failed canvases. I learned many more stories. Paul Taylor, the legendary choreographer, octogenarian at this point, he had his now landmark style so panned when it was debuted in the 1950s that the reviewer left the newsprint completely blank. He said, if Paul Taylor won't dance, then I won't write. It was that minimalist, and the review that brutal. Paul Taylor looked at it and he said, and you know, it wasn't even a very big blank. He said, <laughs> frustrated, and he now performs, his company does at Lincoln Center every year. I was struck when I went to Sotheby's one day and saw when Martin Luther King's papers were being auctioned off that he received C's in a transcript of A's and B's during seminary. And guess what class? Can you see? Public speaking. <laughs> Not once, but twice. And then went on to lead our nation with the power of his spoken truth. I wonder what that teacher thought 
of giving King those grades and what shifted in King himself when he did. We know these stories. They're all around, and we often hear them around commencement time when people are able, because of having reached a peak pinnacle of success, to be vulnerable enough to state the true nature of their journey, as J.K. Rowling did, or Michael Jordan did as well here, when he described how many shots he missed and how that allows him to be as successful as he became, or J.K. Rowling did when she spoke at Harvard University in a commencement speech entitled The Fringe Benefits of Failure. She spoke about how rock bottom became the solid foundation on which she built her rise and became, at the time, the richest woman in England. She also spoke about how ultimately the sense of failure is really about letting the gifts inside of you out and not doing so being the only failure of all. Oprah Winfrey spoke about a similar idea, and I'm not sure what it is about Harvard and failure, but she also spoke about the fringe benefits of failure in her own way and summarized it this way. Doesn't matter how far you might rise, she said, at some point you're bound to stumble, and when you do, remember this. There's no such thing as failure. Failure is just life trying to move you in another direction. There are many these stories. I think that the life of Ben Saunders, for me, is one of the most poignant examples of the gift of the near win, an iconic creative endeavor. Ben Saunders is an Arctic explorer, polar explorer, the first person in the world to go to the North Pole and South Pole unassisted and on foot. He's British, we're around the same age. I spent two years interviewing him, wanting to understand how it is that he found the strength to achieve this feat. Here he is in the Arctic, which you have to remember is the size of the United States, completely depopulated, and is not one giant sheet of ice any longer, thanks to climate change. It's constantly, these sheets of ice are constantly moving in the other direction, opposite of where you would like to go. And it was really the psychological ability that Ben had to reframe the near win, to reframe the sense of failure, of having trudged for 12 hours in sub-50 degree temperatures with this 200-pound sledge on his back and sleep and realize that the ice had just erased the gains from the entire day, right? He was able to see this propulsion in himself from that near win, and he really got me thinking about the power of this idea. It's a timeless one. Emily Dickinson has said it maybe most succinctly here. We never know how high we are till we are called to rise. All these stories made me think that I personally needed to reconsider the true nature of creative triumph. I realized that I needed to understand it both for myself, but I think that we also disservice ourselves when we communicate the life of a creative icon or a creative enterprise and leave out this part of the process. Not just because it makes the story more relatable, but because it deprives us of the guidepost we need to understand that the near win is part of this process and that it can have a propulsion and an aid and an accelerant in our process that might not have come if we had had mere success alone. So I decided to write this book. Not that book. (laughs) The Rise. Now, 
I realized as I was writing The Rise, it was around 2008 when I had the idea that because of the recession, this idea of a near win actually having aid in many enterprises was an idea that was prevalent in a certain part of American culture, mainly entrepreneurial life. In 2009, in Silicon Valley, a conference emerged called FailCon, and around this time, and I'll talk about this slide, failure became a, a term that was just more popular in, in current discussion. And at the time, in Silicon Valley, in October of that year, I went and was stunned to hear entrepreneurs speak about really heinous setbacks and how it actually aided their success. They could only speak about their near wins. They could only speak about their so-called failures. I heard about one CEO whose setbacks were so heinous that my mouth was nearly on the ground, and he put in his bid for unluckiest entrepreneur of the year. <laughs> this man was talking about a company he founded called Akamai, and this new startup he had that was fantastic as a result of those near wins, and that man was Travis Kalnack, who's now CEO of Uber. Conference, Failcon, was very much like the kitchen table that Sarah Blakely had, one of the youngest self-made billionaires in the US, uh, to have created this wealth without inheritance, founder of Spanx. She had a father who asked her every day at the kitchen table, so what did you fail at today? It's a confusing question, but a helpful question for anyone who's involved in a creative pursuit. She learned from him when he was disappointed that she had nothing to offer as an answer, that failure was not an outcome but was the refused attempt, the refusal to try if you have an innovative, creative idea. And when she speaks about the journey to found Spanx, she looks back at that kitchen table as setting up the foundation for her to be able to go on to that achievement. But FailCon allows for that. It allows for a safe space in which one, people can speak about their so-called failures and how it helped with their ascent. Now, we know that it's difficult to speak about failure in the context of a corporate culture. Part of the reason has to do with the lack of distinction we make between the type of near win or, or failure that's requisite for creative enterprises. My colleague at Harvard, Amy Edmondson, describes the distinction this way. In innovation, there are blameworthy failures and there are praiseworthy failures. Blameworthy failures occur when we're operating in environments in which safety is paramount and deviating from protocol uh, has unwanted results. But praiseworthy failures operate when we are in a landscape of, of innovation, when we don't know what's ahead and we need to try out new ideas, which might have unwanted results, but might lead to the telegraph or a Martin Luther King figure or, or so on. Understanding this distinction, I think, is key, and praiseworthy failures are oftentimes what the near win is about. I wanted to understand, I realized, this riddle of the near win, how it is that these stories that I described earlier become not ones of defeat, but conversion, correction after these setbacks. Now, what I learned is that there is a psychology to the near win. There's a reason why, when you look at, as I did, the life stories of over 150 individuals, um, you go into their stories in depth over years, historical figures and contemporary figures, you notice a similar dynamic. 
there is this propulsion that comes from the near wind because of our psychology. But what I also realized is that when individuals were able to convert from these circumstances and have an iconic level of creative achievement, they did so because they were able to master three different paradoxes. The first is that they were able to seek not just success, but mastery. And they were able to sustain that mastery by letting themselves periodically drop their expertise and cultivate the wisdom of what I would call the deliberate amateur, to retain the curiosity of the child who asks questions that experts wouldn't dare and who often arrives at answers that experts never find. The next paradox I saw is that people were able to know when they needed to put their works out in public, when they needed to uncloak their creative pursuits. But they also knew when to keep their work private in a way that's counterintuitive to how we think about communicating our ideas today. And the third, which we'll just touch on briefly at the end, really, is this balance between being gritty. These individuals I spoke with and researched were incredibly gritty, but they also knew when to quit so that their work didn't become dysfunctional persistence, you could say. So let's take these ideas in turn, and then we'll, we'll leave time for questions at the end. Mastery, it's a term we don't use very often. What do I mean by mastery? Success, as I see it, is what we all want, yes, but it is merely meeting a goal once, arriving there, and oftentimes not even going further. But mastery is a far more internal, long-term, constant journey. Mastery often comes just like an arrow in flight from a series of autocorrects, a constant state of endeavor. I came to understand the distinction and to see that most creatives who we celebrate are interested in mastery and not success. When I came across a set of near-Olympic caliber archers one day, so I'm going to tell you about them briefly because I think they'll help set up the distinction. I learned about them through a great story, in fact, in the New York Times. This Olympic-caliber set of archers I realized when I went up to visit them one very cold May day in New York City at Columbia University's Baker's Fields were all women, as it turned out. They are on the varsity team at Columbia, and these women stepped out of this coal, this gray van, and I looked and realized that they were entirely women, and I asked the coach, where were the men? And he said, well, at Columbia, apparently the women are the best. So this all-female archery team captivated me for far longer than I thought they would when I went to watch them. I imagined watching their practice for maybe half an hour. And I ended up staying for hours as I watched them constantly reframe their vision of themselves in every moment. I stood behind one archer as she lined up to shoot and saw her hit a seven and then a nine, then an eight, and then a 10. And then her next arrow didn't even hit the target. And I saw her wince and ask her coach not to look downrange with his binoculars. She didn't even want to know where it landed. I saw one archer just starfished on the ground, right, trying to regain her concentration, as T.S. Eliot might put it, to regain its kind of still point in the turning world. And I was captivated by this arduous 
pursuit in relative obscurity. No matter their proficiency, they were never going to achieve the kind of acclaim they might as soccer players or basketball stars. What I realized is I was watching the distinction between success and mastery. Success is the ability to hit that 10 ring once, but mastery is knowing that it means nothing if you can't do it again and again. But what I learned from those archers is that the propulsion of that journey of mastery doesn't come from being happy you hit that 10 ring, but can come from that propulsion acquired by the frustration between seeing that gap between where you are and where you want to go. Seeing yourself as an archer who just hit a seven but knows she could really hit a nine, and so on. In other words, the near win has a catalytic force. I know you've seen this in your own creative lives. How many times have you noticed that coming just shy of your goal actually gives you more tenacity to achieve something you hadn't even dreamed you could before? We witness this more often than we know when we watch any Olympic competition. Have you ever seen the medal stand and looked at the difference in the expressions between the silver medalist and the bronze medalist? I see heads nodding. <laughs> Psychologists have studied this seemingly odd fact that silver medalists look often far more disappointed with themselves than bronze medalists. And why is this? <laughs> bronze medalists had more to gain from improving their performance than silver, so you would think they'd be more disappointed. But what Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman have found is that the mind tends to dwell on what just might have been. Just coming shy of your goal is what the mind dwells upon. So the silver medalists are dwelling upon what would have happened if they had just shaved off a second from that running time and then won the gold. And the bronze medalists are thinking, what would have happened if they were just a second slower and came in fourth place and not meddled at all? <laughs> it creates this silver medalist phenomenon, which gives us a very vivid physical description of why the near win is so powerful in our lives. Now, whether or not we're athletes, we all experience the near win. And when we do, we see what those athletes also are experiencing, which is that it shifts our placement of our goals in our lives. So when, if I were to ask you what you would like to do in your work in the next two months, odds are you would give me a great answer, but it might be more vague than if I asked you, what do you plan to do with your work tomorrow? What the near wind does is gives us this sense of frustration that lets us focus on what we can do right now to achieve what we have a greater desire to master in our lives. We've seen the benefits of this phenomenon more often than we know. We've often seen it not just with Olympic competition, but with anything that we might call a masterpiece, a classic, a timeless gift. If you're anything like me, you've gone to see an exhibition of Cezanne's work at some museum, not knowing that he considered 90% of his paintings near wins. He would set these works aside with the intention of picking them back up again, reworking the canvases to meet his goal, to realize nature in paint, as he put it. Many creative masters, I could rattle off an entire list for you, have this sense of incompletion about their work. One example is Franz Kafka, 
who saw his works as so incomplete that he wanted all of his manuscripts, letters, diaries, even sketches burned upon his death. His friend, thankfully, not necessarily for Kafka, but for us, defied his request and published all the works we now have by Kafka, works that he considered near wins. One work is even so incomplete that it stops mid-sentence at the end of the novel. Michelangelo summarized this journey of creative mastery best. He said, Lord, grant that I desire more than I can accomplish. And this is what propels masters, bless you, onward. I know, (laughs) allergies. And I think that mastery can have this repulsion from the near win, as I described, but it also can be quite frustrating, you know, to live in this way. So the question becomes, how does the near win become a constant propulsion in our lives and not defeating, not dispiriting? Albert Einstein, I think, summarizes this quandary for master's best. Here I'm showing you an image of his office taken at Princeton University on the last day of his life in 1955. Does your office look like this? No. (laughs) My office sometimes looks like this, if I'm being creative. (laughs) He, at that same time, received a letter from a young girl, six years old, a little worried that she was below average in math, as if summarizing the problem with the, the constant near win of the lives of masters. He wrote back to her and simply said, do not worry about your difficulties in math. I can assure you that mine are still greater, he said. So how exactly do masters remain encouraged, inspired, despite this constant state of affairs where you're living out a near win? I came to understand that oftentimes being able to have a periodic time in your life or space in your life where you can be a deliberate amateur is often the only way. Now, to talk about this, I want to tell you another story, a sort of case study, uh, about two Nobel Prize-winning physicists who have revolutionized the electronics industry. They are Andre Geim and Konstantin Novoslav. Now, they won for the isolation of the first ever two-dimensional object on the Earth, It is thinner than steel, it's stronger than silk, it's the most conductive material known to man or woman, and it is revolutionizing nanotechnology as well. But before winning the Nobel Prize, Andre was better known for having won an Ig Nobel Award for levitating a live frog with magnets. (laughs) No one has ever gone on to win a Nobel Prize after winning an Ig Nobel Award which takes place at Harvard University every year. (laughs) Again, Harvard in failure. I guess that's why they hired me. So Andre had an electromagnet in his Netherlands laboratory when he was working there about 10 years ago and decided to just play around with this new gadget he had that he knew nothing about. And it was a Friday night, and he decided to test whether or not there was really diamagnetism in everything, the idea that if something contains water, it can resist gravity to a certain extent. So he dropped in objects, tomatoes, strawberries. His wife, a physicist, suggested this amphibian and noticed that they all started levitating. 
which made the rounds in all the scientific magazines when it was published in April of 1997, which is unfortunate because everyone thought it was an April Fool's Day joke. But in fact, he had discovered this property. But he had discovered something else. Friday night experiments, which is the time that he used to discover this, became a vehicle for him to allow himself and those in his laboratory to be deliberate amateurs. And from that time, they have gone on to win all of these various awards, from Nobel Prizes, you name it. 10% of their laboratory's time is spent on Friday night experiments. And during this time, they're allowed to ask questions that experts wouldn't dare. As Andre said in his Nobel Prize speech, I, I think it's better to be wrong than be boring. So what he allows for in the Friday night experiment time is for people to feel unashamed of being wrong and therefore ask questions that might be path-breaking in their vision if they're right. One of those questions was whether or not a pencil with graphite in it, carbon, and scotch tape could be used to find the first ever two-dimensional object on the Earth, which is what they did. Seems very childlike, of course, which led to all sorts of problems when they tried to actually reveal their scientific experiment. How many organizations have the equivalent of this Friday night experiment time? Far more than you would think. I was surprised when I tried to find the analogy to this and, and found tons. I'll give you a few examples. We might be able to speak to more during the Q&A. One is the Mayo Clinic. When they wanted to be more innovative, despite how successful they are with medical solutions, they created something analogous called a Queasy Eagle Award, an award given to researchers' work that, kind of like a Queasy Eagle, didn't quite have a full flight but led to future ideas. And at the beginning of this period, this 18-month period, they had 36 ideas for new patents. And at the end, they had 246 new ideas for patents, which was an exponential level of growth that they hadn't seen before. Oftentimes, innovative ideas are so counterintuitive that they can look like failure to yourself or to your colleagues. And the safe haven of a Friday night experiment, kind of bracketed period, lowers the, the barriers of the feelings of shame associated with revealing these ideas. This is what many other organizations have learned, that it's the principle behind Google's 20% time, times they allow employees to really noodle on their own on ideas that might not lead to anything path-breaking, but if they do, can result in something profitable for the company like Gmail, which came from that 20% time. There are many examples from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab to the final example I'll give you is Innocentive, a company spun out of Eli Lilly based in Boston and is an organ, a crowdsourcing organ, that allows for Fortune 500 companies to find answers to questions that their own in-house experts cannot. So Innocentive has found that when they're able to crowdsource these answers, and they did the diagnosis to see where the answers came from, they all came from essentially amateurs, those whose domain of expertise was the furthest away from the problem that they were trying to solve. Right? So this paradox, mastering it, is crucial, not just for individuals, but for organizations as well. Now, the next paradox I noticed is about this 
tension between revealing a creative endeavor in public and safe havening the time that you make decisions about that creative enterprise in private, which I think is really crucial for making decisions as a group in any organization. But I saw it most vividly when I learned about an endeavor that had radically changed how the entertainment industry greenlights films called The Blacklist. So to talk about the importance of privacy for allowing ourselves to make iconoclastic decisions, I'm going to tell you another story now. These films, Juno, Slumdog Millionaire, Lars and the Real Girl, and even The King's Speech, would never have come to light if not for this seemingly simple document called The Blacklist. In 2005, a man named Franklin Leonard, in full disclosure, who I went to college with, was working for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. And he was frustrated that he wasn't finding quality scripts to greenlight. Instead, they were pre-sold properties, kind of sequels, Anchorman 2, things like that. Anchorman 2 is great, I'm sure. I've never seen it. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> he wanted to find unusual films, and so he decided that maybe his colleagues just weren't brave enough to state what they really thought about unusual properties. So he did something quite interesting. He created an anonymous Gmail account called The Blacklist, wrote to 90 colleagues, and asked them three simple questions. Please tell me, first, the screenplays that you secretly love. Second, please make sure these screenplays will not be in theaters in the next 12 months. And third, please ensure that these screenplays haven't yet been produced or greenlit or have money behind them. And nearly all did as they were asked. He tabulated the answers, sorted by the number of votes that each script received, and distributed the document in this sort of list format and called it the blacklist and went on vacation to somewhere nice like the St. Regis Ball Harbor. Do you have this conference here every year? It's amazing. <laughs> And because it was 2005, he could turn off his phone. And when he came back home, he turned it back on and saw that this document had come back to him over 100 times with this question mark, essentially, in every email saying, what is this incredible document? And he thought he was going to get fired because he hadn't revealed his identity as the creator of this document, The Blacklist. And Hollywood development had stopped that day in December when people received it and realized that these films people were making fun of, Slumdog Millionaire and Lars and the Real Girl, as, as would come onto the list later, Juno, were actually films that people secretly loved and wanted to see made. How could that be that there was such a radical discrepancy? Now, what Franklin didn't know when he created the list is that he had eliminated a problem that occurs in any creative group, and it's called the ash experiment, or the ash phenomenon. The ash experiment happens when you have to summon bravery to stand up for a very iconoclastic idea and are faced with potential group dissent. It's not just about peer pressure, though. Here's the experiment. Solomon Ash in the 1950s asked a subject a simple question, and in private, they all gave the right answer. Which line on the left is the equivalent to the line on the right? And everyone in this room is going to state that it's line two. But what stunned him and what has continued to stun neuroeconomists, psychologists ever since, is that if you ask someone the same question and they don't know it, 
but the rest of the people in the room have been paid off or told to state the wrong answer, your rate of giving the correct answer will drop to approximately 25%. Seems shocking, right? I'd like to think that I'm still going to say it's line two, no matter whether or not all of you guys are saying it's line one or three. But this is what they have found, and they've replicated the experiment as recently as 2005, when Gregory Burns, a neuroeconomist, decided to put subjects in an fMRI scanner to see what's actually happening in the brain when we're giving up on our own obvious, but seemingly iconoclastic, correct view. What he found is essentially two things. First is that the amygdala is activated that sense of fear or flight or flight occurs when you perceive that you're about to be faced with group dissent. But the second, and this is what I think is so important for a group, any group really, is that when subjects were asked if they knew they were giving up on their own correct view, most of the time they do not. How many times have you not known that you've suppressed an idea that your organization needs to hear because of the ASH experiment, essentially, because of how we're hardwired what can we do to create cultures where we allow for productive group dissent? You could do what one prominent CEO I know does, who shall remain nameless. He oftentimes will gather kind of the troops, his cabinet, so to speak, and say, okay, well, are we all in agreement about this decision here? And if heads nod, what he often does is he'll say, okay, well, I propose that we postpone this decision until we can cultivate enough dissent to make sure we really know what the stakes are for this project here. Being, creating a culture through leadership that allows for this permissive time to assess a new iconoclastic idea I think is crucial. And we can also speak about the ways in which various other organizations do this. But ultimately, what's at stake is asking ourselves if we are able to create both physically and in ourselves the private time we need to summon the bravery to create or stand up for an unusual iconoclastic idea. Privacy is a timeless feature of the creative process. I was reading an interview that Chris Rock gave to New York Magazine recently where he was lamenting that comedians oftentimes now feel that they have no place to actually develop excellent material because of the prevalence of smartphones and how the rehearsal space of the comedy club has now become too public, too early. They no longer have the privacy to fail on stage and to not have that displayed to the world. Albert Einstein timelessly said this too when he talked about that office I showed you earlier as being the worldly cloister where he hatched his most beautiful ideas. Think about that term, worldly, public, but cloister. It needs to be private. Musicians remind us of this. To give you one other sort of scientific study, when you look at musicians, jazz musicians, during a state of improvisation, and you put their brains in fMRI scanners, what Charles Lim at Johns Hopkins found is that the brain is creating an inner space of privacy. The part of the brain that controls critique is so low that the only time the brain looks like that is during a state of sleep, dreaming, right? Inner privacy. So we can speak about, yes, the detriment of having too many open plan offices and how not having privacy in a physical way can lower creativity, but this is also about how it is that we sustain privacy within ourselves for our creative endeavors.
Now, we're almost out of time, but I do want to show you, if I may, uh, this final clip. Now, I'm showing you this image here because I realized as I wrote this book that ultimately creativity is very much about exploration. And all the different techniques, tools, and the psychology required applies to our own creative lives. If I had not written about Ben Saunders, I would have written about a team of Arctic explorers who've now gone on to become alpinists as well. There's a film out that's won all sorts of awards called Maru, and I almost wrote about them as well because their journey embodies everything that I've described. The propulsion of the near win, the crucial time of having privacy before your work is public, and also this idea of knowing when you have to quit in order to remain supple enough to sustain that grit that you need in a creative endeavor. So I think what I'll do is show this clip, and we'll end shortly after, and we'll have time for questions. the shark's fin in Meru Central. This is the anti-Everest. Meru is not just hard, it's hard in this really complicated way. You gotta be able to ice climb, mix climb, and you gotta be able to do big wall climbing at 20,000 feet. It's all that stuff wrapped in one package that's defeated so many good climbers. That, to a certain kind of mindset, is an irresistible appeal. Climbing is very risky, but I do it by choice. When I'm on the rope with that risk above, I'm in control of my destiny. If I let go, boom, I'm gone dead. I hang on to it, I get to the top, I have this endorphin reward from within. The game in climbing is cut that line as fine as you can, but you don't want to take stupid risks. You're supposed to show that you're so good and so controlled that you can take it right to that line and go no further. And sure, part of that's competitive, but a challenge for which the outcome is guaranteed isn't really a challenge in the weird moral universe of climbers. The challenge has to be real. Defeat has to be a likelihood, um, death a possibility. Every single day, it seemed like there was some insurmountable obstacle. But your comfort level and your threshold for the acceptance of risk, I think, for me, it's tied directly to what I want to get out of life. For a climber, I think one of the most key things you can do is assess each potential hazard in terms of what might go wrong. What would a fall on a traverse look like? If, you're, if you fell at this point, what would happen? Or if you dropped your food, what would happen? What could that worst case scenario be? When you head off on an expedition, you have to be convinced that you can do it. 
but I honestly wasn't totally prepared for what we encountered. It's hard to overstate what kind of condition we were in. Barely, yeah. I mean, we're literally down to eating a couple spoonfuls of granola in the morning and sharing a couple slices of salami during the day. I mean, we're definitely on pretty limited rations at this point. I'd be freezing, shivering uncontrollably, but I definitely didn't want to be the guy that said, oh, I'm cold, I want to go down. We were getting frayed. But there's this sort of bravado or this aspect of climbers. You never want to bring up retreat and going down until you really have to. Conrad's up there. I got up a couple moves in it and I realized it's gonna take us four or five hours to deal with this pitch. We're probably at about 20,500 feet, just short of the ridge. It's Arctic. Probably another 500 feet to the summit. We're gunning for the ridge line right below the summit. And we've been going for probably 12 hours and there's these giant chunks of snow and ice just slamming behind. I could really feel that I was losing my fingers and toes. I started just screaming and yelling and crying. That was my absolute last breaking point. But they were talking about spending the night there. What if we push on? Should we push on? It's hard to describe what that line is. Um, but you know when you cross it, and we'd already crossed it and drawn another line and then crossed it again and then drawn another line and crossed it again. As the mentor and the, the silverback, the old guy on the team, I was like, hey, this is it. We can't, it, we're, we're done. We can't, it, it's too much risk involved. We know the, the standard Sisyphus tail. He has to start at the bottom of hell and he rolls his boulder up the steep peak. And then before he gets to the top, the powers of the universe flip the rock back down. He has to do it all over again, over and over again. There's no end, there's no reward. This was thought to be the definition of hell. It's over. It's not easy turning around. Maybe it was just wasn't meant to be climbed. To be within a stone's throw at the top and then not be able to pull it off, it was heartbreaking. All of us gave it our best. We pushed our limits, but there was something left undone. of a near win. They did, in fact, achieve their goal three years later. It's a teaser to get you to watch the film, so. <laughs> <laughs> they did. What I love about that clip and the film itself is it shows 
Conrad, the silverback on the team as he describes it, uh, engage in leadership in a creative endeavor of a different kind in which he has to make these decisions about all the things we really described. Now, none of us will likely be going on expeditions of this kind, but we do all have a summit of some sort that does seem out of reach, perhaps, in our lives. And what writing this book, what living out lots of these ideas showed me is that it's not simply desire that gets a creative person to their goal, but what they do with that near win, what that near win does to our hearts and our minds and our psychology. So what I hope I've done is offered you some techniques to not make that near win in all of our lives daunting, but instead inspiring. I hope I've encouraged you to, as you seek mastery, to let yourself be a deliberate amateur at times to find safe havens within yourself, to let yourself learn to surrender, yes, but to create privacy within your work environment and within yourself. And to also know when it's allowed to quit so that you can retain the grit that you need in your creative pursuit. And I thank you very much. Time for a, a couple quick questions. Um, how many of you brainstorm in a group, right? And uh, how many of you actually create time to uh, think about the creative idea by yourself or allow others in your organization to do that? So much to learn from Sarah. Um, any uh, comments or questions? Right over here. Here comes Mike. Okay. I'm a little shorter than Rob. So Hi there, thank you. Um, <laughs> my name's Heath Ruddock. I'm Chief Creative Officer of Padilla CIT. Um, yeah. You speak about, uh, and these are all very familiar things to me, permissive time, mm -hmm. um, private time, um, reframing time. There's a theme mm -hmm. and it's time. Mm -hmm. um, the great conundrum, certainly from a creative person's perspective, is time equals money. And I'd love you to give some counsel to the leaders in this room to help them understand how you quantify that time within your business and give your, mm. take, have, find the courage to give your business permission mm. to make that time available. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's one of the big things everyone battles with is like, okay, 10%, yep. <laughs> that looks like something on a graph at the mm. end of every month. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard to quantify that back to shareholders, to owners, because um, mm -hmm. it looks like fluffy time to right. many, you know. Right, right. No, it's a great question. And what I said before is so, so true. I mean, Rob is such, as I've found you, I mean, such an empathic and creative leader that I'm not surprised you're getting a question that is probably the first one I've ever had about time. I've done maybe 60 talks at this point. And this it's, a, it's a very real issue, though, for it, us. It, it is. Oh, no, of course. And, and I say that because it's such an astute question so really, the focus and the concern is, how do you show the story behind a measurement, right? How do you bring a story to life? Now, the reason I wrote the book is because I think that the first step in having just a, a larger, beyond the creative environment itself, having a more global understanding of these ideas comes from honoring the timeless feature of the creative process as it's told to us in stories. Now, we've, we've lost a lot because we no longer have myths and all these things that reminded us of this just eternal principles to things, Persephone, et cetera, we don't have that. So now we have a culture, and we're grateful for it, in which we trot out stories of our icons, but don't often tell 
reveal as they do at commencement time what's really involved. I think that's the first step. I would love to see cultures sort of that have, say, creative individuals that are doing an art at Ketchum in London, for example, plaster onto their walls the images of the different icons in their industry and what they actually did to get there, right? That, from, I mean, to know, say, that Martin Luther King had that experience and went on to become an orator, I think would help anyone in seminary if they're going on. To, so, so that's first. But, but yes, of course, I take your point, and it's, it's a lot of why I wrote um, this one particular chapter on the deliberate amateur. What I found is that there are creative leaders who have been able to find, like Ivy Ross, for example, in the world of design, who've been able to convince CEOs at companies at the time, like Gap and Mattel, to rethink how they measure productivity in their organization. So she used the same principle of a Friday night experiment. To not go into it in too much detail, she essentially created a three-month period of a rotation such that employees from any rank went into this Montessori-like environment for three months, where all they did was essentially play. They were permitted to just play, right? All their other responsibilities went, were reallocated. The joke was that this environment was so creatively fertile that women who were trying to get pregnant left within their first trimester of their pregnancy. It was so just allowing, permissive in that way. But so many of the things that we then celebrated Mattel in particular for at the time came from this Friday night experiment period, which she called Project Platypus. She was known for going into organizations and restructuring how they did their creative work. And that allows for measurement to look a very different way, because if you're permitted for three months to, to do what a creative individual is directing you to, you're no longer beholden to the different metrics. So I, as I'm really thinking about your question, a lot of it has to do with just big data visualization and changing how we measure performance and how we, how we consider how we might structure our time. And I'd be happy to offer you more examples beyond Ivy Ross. Yeah. Great here's, question. Here's one right over here. Yeah. Uh, good morning, Walter morning. Jennings. I'm uh, with Huawei Technologies in uh, Shenzhen, China, and I was just going to give another example on that time for creativity. Yeah. Um, I think it also comes down to cultural. Mm -hmm. um, I'm fairly new within mm -hmm. Huawei, and um, every lunch break, which is really hard to believe, between 12 and 1.45 p.m., you are not allowed to work. Uh, huh. Printers are turned off. Uh, wow. Lights in the offices are okay. shut down. Some people actually use okay. the opportunity to take a nap, but the CEOs say huh. you are to use the time to reflect, Beautiful. to read a book outside of work, uh, wow. to do some exercise. Mm. Um, and I find I personally attend mm -hmm. MOOCs during that period, but it's also huh. that time where I put out a big butcher's board and the magic markers and get to thinking. Um, but I find that culturally mm -hmm. the permission to time out. It, yeah. It's quite unusual and it takes some time to get used to. So just a case study that's or an great. example. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I think that's crucial. And what you're also highlighting is that culture is defined by what we let each other do as a group, right? We're so focused on the individual here in this culture. And what I've found, because the book has been translated into other countries and I've spoken in others, is that there is a very different focus on the collective and what's best for the whole, especially in Asian cultures. When I went to speak in Seoul, Korea, the, every single question I received was focused on the we. Not one person used the I. It was always, what can we do as a society? What can, even the high school student asked a question at the World Business Forum. What can we do as young people? And I, 
I was really struck by that. So cultural shifts do happen by what leaders allow for the entire group to do, not just what they model individually. So I think your, your point speaks to that. I want to be very sensitive to the time that, uh, for the rest of the, yeah. the day, so we're going to have to call it a close there. To celebrate the randomness of creativity, 10 of you have a piece of paper with a picture of the book under it, under your seat. And uh, Sarah's been very nice to sign copies of the book. So those of you who have, it's on the floor. It's on the floor. You got one. Ah, <laughs> it's like Oprah. So uh, you can collect them, uh, collect them during yeah. the break, um, yeah, and exactly uh, the and enjoy reading the rise. And please join me in thanking Sarah Lewis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers for DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 